0: so back uh, many years ago when I was in graduate school at seminary studying to uh, to be a pastor uh, I met a guy named uh, Steve Gare, and uh, Steve and I had four semesters of Greek together we went through the uh, through the in the in the trenches together there in Greek uh, 101 two three and four and over the years Steve and I have uh, kept touch and it's been great uh, to do that and, we were talking earlier this summer, and he said he was going to be in the area, so I invited him to speak. Steve uh, grew, actually grew up in Brooklyn and then in New Jersey, so he's uh, from the general area here. He kind of knows what it's like to, uh, to live in New Jersey. He currently lives in Dallas, where he's a pastor of a Messianic Jewish congregation, which means he actually grew up in a, in a Jewish home and became a follower of Jesus uh, uh, when he was relatively young, and uh, God has really worked in him and through him. Uh, he started a ministry called sojourner ministry that's dedicated to exploring the Jewish heart of Christianity. And I love that because it really helps us to see how God has worked uh, really down through the ages, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament to point people to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ. And so, Steve, why don't you come on up and Steve's gonna share with us this morning. Let's welcome Steve as he comes up.
1: do stand up.
0: Um, I want to greet
1: you as Jews greet one another in Texas. We say shalom, y'all. <laughs> as uh, Clay, thank you for that introduction, Clay. Yeah, I'm Stephen Gare, the founder and director of Sojourner Ministries, which is an organization dedicated to exploring the Jewish heart of Christianity. And when I say the Jewish heart of Christianity, what am I talking about? Well, the Jewish heart of our faith is not a what, it's a whom. Jesus is the Jewish heart of Christianity. Jesus is Jewish, born of a Jewish mother, circumcised on the eighth day, lived and died within a Jewish cultural context in the Hebrew homeland, the matrix of Israel. And what that means for us is that if Jesus is your Lord, if Jesus is your Savior, if He is your Messiah, then right now, beating within each one of us is that Jewish heart. My role is simply to facilitate A relationship between yourself and the one you already possess. And if there's anyone here this morning who does not yet know Jesus as their Lord, as their Savior, as their Messiah, then my role is to be matchmaker and introduce you. We're going to focus in on the Jewish heart of Christianity this morning by focusing in on a very important holy day. Uh, for some of us, we may only be, I mean, I grew up in New York and New Jersey, you know, and uh, for some people, uh, this day is holy because you get off from school on this day. It's, it's the day of atonement or Yom Kippur. So many of us have some questions about that day. Many more of us may be familiar with it. But what I want to share with you is how Jesus fulfills this day. What we're going to see over the next 30 minutes is how Jesus uh, uh, is both our perfect high priest and sacrifice. Let me just share uh, uh, just one or two things about myself. I am a fourth generation Jewish believer. Uh, What that means is that actually almost a century ago, now my great grandmother, Helen Kozer, found her Messiah in the Holy Land. That's Brooklyn, New York. And uh, and she, you know what I'm talking about. And she passed down her faith to her daughter, my grandmother, who passed down her faith to her daughter, my mom, who passed down her faith to me. So that makes me fourth generation Jewish person who believes that Jesus is the Messiah. My son, now fifth generation. So you could say that exploring the Jewish heart of Christianity is a family tradition and one that I'm absolutely thrilled to be able to share with you this morning. Uh, I'm the author of, uh, of several books. Uh, One is a commentary on the Book of Acts uh, called Acts, Witnesses to the World. The original manuscript title was the Book of Acts, who let in all these Gentiles, Uh, which I thought was marketing genius, but my publisher apparently disagreed. Uh, Do we have any Gentiles here today? Raise your hand if you're a Gentile. If you're not sure, you are. I followed that up. I'm not, that's not a joke. I really did write this book. Uh, and uh, I followed that up with another commentary on the book of Hebrews. I like to see uh, Hebrews read in, in, in church. And I called that one the book of Hebrews news from the Jews for you. Um, no, that one's called Christ is Greater, uh, but, which he is. But let's, speaking of Christ, let's get to the, uh, the topic at hand. There's actually two, re- aside from getting out of school, there's two reasons. Uh, to uh, discuss this uh, this uh, festival, this festival, this holiday. Uh, the first is that the study of uh, a holiday like Yom Kippur helps illuminate and deepen our understanding of the New Testament. As the scripture says in Colossians 2.16 and 17, uh, Paul speaking to a group of mixed uh, Jews and Gentiles, which is uh, Jews and non-Jews, which were... Uh, that was, that was the composition of almost every church outside of the Holy Land in the first century. Uh, mixed group, uh, not mixed up, but mixed. Uh, and he says, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or new moons or Sabbaths, which are shadows of things to come, but the substance is Christ. In other words, every Jewish festival, every Jewish custom, every everything that's laid out for us is a Prophetic type, that's a prophetic, not pathetic type, Uh, a a picture of uh, a shadow of things to come, a revelation of God's plan and purposes for his people, whether they are ethnically Jewish or not. Uh, And the substance, the the essence of every one of these Jewish holidays is Jesus. So if we want to see Jesus, boy, if I had a dollar for every song, a worship song that says, I want to know Jesus, I want to see Jesus more clearly. this is the answer, okay? Seeing him as the fulfillment of this Jewish holiday is going to be you great insight. So, number one, he points us to Christ. Uh, it points us to Christ. He is their very essence. The second reason to study the festival of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is that every one of the Jewish holidays, including this one, is very important to God. And they are specifically referred to, you know, if you wanted to look and find where all these holidays are, uh, in, in one place in the scripture tied up with a nice ribbon it would be Leviticus 23. And Leviticus 23 introduces the major festivals in, uh, the, in, the, in the Old Testament. And it opens up by saying, these are the appointed festivals, right? These are my fixed times, the fixed times of the Lord, which you shall proclaim. It's always interesting to see what's said and what's not said. He does, God himself says, these are my days. He doesn't say, hey, these are Jewish holidays, and eventually you're going to wind up getting off from uh, school, uh, and you can take off work. for the, No, he said, these are my days. And so we should, I think, treat these days with, uh, with some care uh, because if they were important to God 3,500 years ago, uh, and he doesn't change, then I dare say that we should at least have a passing acquaintance with what God calls his own is so important. And another reason I don't have a slide for, but I'll just tell you personally as uh, the director of Sojourner Ministries, uh, it's that uh, reaches the Jewish people and shares with the Gentiles what Jesus is all about from a Jewish perspective, I want to tell you that understanding what these Jewish holidays are about, help us to focus our prayers for the Jewish people. The Bible tells us it's our responsibility to uh, judiciously, strategically pray for the Jewish people. And Yom Kippur is the holiest day. David Tellman is still the holiest day for the Jewish people. But let's get into the biblical observance. Let's see, because I'm like the Egyptian mummy, pressed for time. Let's keep moving. Uh, And uh, we'll see what the Hebrew scriptures tell us about Yom Kippur. Uh, We're going to focus in on Leviticus 16 uh, right now. Uh, And uh, let's read 16, uh, beginning with verse 29. In the seventh month, on the 10th day of the month, you shall deny yourself and you shall do no work. I'm going to read this and then we'll unpack it. For on this day atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you from all your sins, and you shall be clean before the Lord as the Sabbath of complete rest to you, and you shall deny yourself. It is a statute forever. The priest who is anointed and consecrated as as the high priest in his father's place shall make atonement for the sanctuary and for atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar and for the priests and for all the people of the assembly." Right? This will be an everlasting statute to make atonement for the people of Israel once in the year for all their sins, so let 's unpack that let 's see what it has to say. Um, the purpose of the day is very clear: to make atonement for the holy sanctuary, for the tabernacle, for the congregation, for the altar, for the priests and the people, all the working parts, all the moving parts uh, that deal with the worship of israel right it 's a time for the national confession of sins that have not been previously confessed and forgiven throughout the Uh, year. It's a reminder that the normal everyday sacrifices were insufficient to atone for sin. Now, I've said atonement a couple of different ways and a couple of different times. Let's define our words, right? Yom Kippur, the title of this holiday. What does it actually mean? The biblical term is Yom Kippurim. It's plural. Day of atonements or day of coverings. And I think really a better translation is the day of coverings. So yom is day in Hebrew, kippurim, the im is, uh, uh, it means plural, day of coverings. Right? It's a little different from what we usually understand when we speak of atonement. Because while atonement speaks of the removal or the erasure of sin, this is actually, this word only means covering over of sins. Yom Kippur, in a sense, refers to the great holy carpet under which God swept Israel's sins during his annual fall cleaning. And when the dirt is swept under a rug, I don't care how meticulously you perform it. You know, the doorbell rings, it's your aunt Tilly. Oh, my goodness. Uh, let's clean up. Uh, I don't care how quickly or how meticulously you do it. The dirt is still there. You can fool your aunt Tilly, but you know that you're just covering over the dirt. You can pretend it's gone. You can function as if it's uh, removed. But even if everybody else is fooled, you know the dirt is just being covered over. And that's how the Day of Atonement works as well. Now, what is the covering for God's people? The covering for God's people is blood. That carpet is blood. Uh, Leviticus 17, 11, which, by the way, is the most important verse in the entire book of Leviticus. Uh, well, some of you may actually have the Leviticus syndrome. Um, and you'll, you'll know, as I described, it's, I call it really the insidious Leviticus uh, syndrome. It's uh, basically uh, uh, when you have determined that this is the year that I'm going to read through the Bible in one year, and you go through Genesis, and it's, oh, it's January, and it's Genesis, and it's his Exodus, and oh, you're right, Charlton Heston, and I know these stories, and Pharaoh, let my people go. And then you get about six or seven chapters in the Leviticus and you say, maybe next year. Um, that's the Leviticus sinner. So, you know, it's nice, it's nice to have the slides because then I don't, have to, I don't have to blow the dust off of Leviticus in our scriptures. But Leviticus 17.11 says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you for making atonement for your lives on the altar. For as life, it is blood that makes atonement. So a basic key concept of the Bible is that without blood... There can be no uh, covering, no atonement, no taking care of sin. Sin cannot be taken care of without blood, according to the Bible. That's just the basic principle. You only have to get three books into the Bible to make sure that you get that, right? So God established a relationship with his chosen people, Israel. But the Jewish people, being human, were prone to sin. They were prone to miss the mark when it comes up to living up to his expectations of holiness. Why did they do that? Because they were Jewish? No, because they were human. They were people, right? Just like you and me. The propensity to sin, as you might imagine, put a bit of a crimp in their relationship with God. But God, in his grace and his mercy, provided for Israel a sacrificial system in order to restore that relationship, to cover over their sin on an annual basis. Each year, in other words, the Israelites got a clean slate, a fresh start before God, a literal recovery with blood. But of course, that annual atonement only lasted as long as individuals didn't sin again, right? which is, as you can imagine, Wasn't very long, so you know after you sweep and I, you know, maybe nobody in this room has ever done it. I've done it, you know. After you sweep the the uh, the dirt under the carpet, how long does the carpet stay clean? Well, until it gets dirty again. Not very long at all, right? And following the Day of Atonement, the very next morning the daily and the weekly Levitical sacrifices immediately started up again, Crank it up again. After a while, a couple of centuries after Moses, I can imagine the stream of bulls and goats complaining on the way to the altar. Here we go again, right? This is getting a little ridiculous. Um, it's gotta be a better way. But of course, God in his grace had planned a better way, which we'll discuss momentarily. But first, I think it would be helpful to turn our attention to the actual Day of Atonement rituals as performed in the tabernacle and in the temple. Uh, Leviticus 16, um, beginning in verse... Well, I'll just summarize Leviticus 16, and we'll have a series of pictures here. Uh, The Lord tells Moses not to come in just at any time into the sanctuary before the mercy seat, or you'll die, because I, the Lord, am on the mercy seat. I'm in the Holy of Holies. So he cannot come in. The process begins with a very clear statement that not just anybody can approach God. First of all, even the Jewish only one person, high priest, only could actually approach the divine presence of God. And he couldn't do that just any old time he wanted to or any way he wanted to. He could only enter into God's presence by the way God said is allowed. Any deviation would mean certain death. And I think that's an awesome reminder for us today uh, because we are being literally and have been for some time bombarded with the message that there's many ways to God and we may all choose our own path to God. You only have to get three books worth into the Bible to decimate that myth. My apologies to Oprah uh, and uh, the like, but God alone determines our access to him. And therefore, because of the uh, specific instructions on entering the presence of God, on the only way in which it's permissible to do so, the high priest, here he is, there there you are, the high priest is the star of the show on this day. Now I want you to note, um, this is the high priest in uh, uh, before and after. This is his normal fancy schmancy robes, and this is the garment that he will, the garment of a normal priest that he will take on on the Day of Atonement. I'll talk about that. why that is in a moment. The uh, high priest is the star. He acts as the representative for the people of Israel. And this is an amazing, important responsibility because the, uh, the, the very destiny of his people rests on his priestly shoulders. And he's sequestered into the temple courts uh, one uh, week prior to the big day to study up. Right, he's got it because he's mostly a politician. Certainly, by the time of Jesus, mostly a pl- politician, and politicians are not known for their religious uh, uh, knowledge. And even an understudy priest is appointed at this time to wait in the wings in case of emergency. Right, we're not far from New York. You know what I'm talking about when I say understudy, right? Uh, <laughs> but uh, the Leviticus 16 goes on to describe that on this day he changes his clothes, his beautiful robes to a simple linen white garment, which is very similar to that of the common priest. And he offers, before he does anything else, he offers a male bull for himself, for his family, for his fellow priests, right? He places two hands on the head of the, yeah, head of the bull, uh, and makes a confession for himself and for his family, because before he can cover anybody else's sins, he's got to cover his own, take care of himself, right? And then he sacrifices that bull over which he's confessed, and the bull's blood would be collected in a bowl and taken by an assistant priest into the temple, being stirred all the while so it doesn't coagulate, and the high priest will fill his censor with hot coals from the altar. He'll enter into the temple building, leaving the court, and enter into the building and walk toward approaches the Holy of Holies. This is the only time in the year that anyone is allowed into the localized presence of God, the most holy place. And it's pitch black. There's no windows, no other sorts of light in the room, only his burning coals. And he lays the fire pan down. He puts the incense on the coals, which immediately creates vast amounts of fragrance smoke in the room. But let's be honest, who can breathe with that? So he has to leave. And then he takes the bowl his assistant has been stirring. And he enters a second time. And he sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, by the way, was gone in the time of Jesus, but the priests continued as if it was actually still there. And he sprinkles the curtain as well in front of the Ark with the blood. Now, Leviticus 16 goes on to describe a very special lottery. Two fairly identical goats, hard to tell them apart, um, uh, are uh, brought before the priest and the, are going to, the priest is going to put his hand in a box. And in the box are two lots, small tablets, which are going to determine the fate of the goats. And the goats shouldn't have gotten their hopes up for this lottery because both, both options are losing propositions for them, right? But they're bad news but, for the goats. Uh, but uh, the, the priest will put his hand, uh, both hands, into the box and the ancient Hebrew equivalent of, you know, Edy Meeny Mo, uh, which by the way is Hebrew for Edy Meeny Mo, uh, and he'll pull out the, 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 the lots, and on the lot is written the name. Okay? One lot is written to the Lord, one lot is written to Azazel, to the wilderness. And the one uh, who is on the side of the wilderness is going to be driven into the wilderness, the one who is uh, for the Lord will be sacrificed. And he takes that one who's going to be sacrificed. And this is now for, on behalf of the people. And he enters into the Holy of Holies a third time. And he <laughs> sprinkles the blood in the Holy of Holies and the bull's blood. He mixes the bull's blood with the goat's blood and that curtain that we saw momentarily ago separating the holy place from the Holy of Holies. will sprinkle that again. What he's doing in a sense uh, is rebooting you know, like sometimes your computer, it's been on for so long that it's starting to really slow up or you've had Chrome open for way too, and way too many tabs, you know, and, uh, and, and your computer's always to slow down. And the only way to really solve the problem is to reboot the computer and then it's fresh and it's new and it's, ah, it's nice and springy and muscular again. Well, these rituals reboot the altar and the tabernacle and the temple and the congregation for a fresh year. But now let's talk about what happens to the second goat, right? He places two hands on the second goat, the head of the, which is about here, the second goat, and he makes public profession, not for his own sins, he's already done that, but for all Israel. And he transfers the sins, the iniquities, and the uh, transgressions of the people onto this goat. And the goat is now serving as a substitute for the people. Their sin have gone onto the goat. It's a substitute, right? And crimson wool is tied uh, between the horns of this goat. And another piece of that crimson wool is tacked onto the temple for all to see. And the goat is escorted by a priest outside of the temple and outside of Jerusalem over the Mount of Olives and into the Judean desert to set this goat free in the wilderness. You know, the Jewish oral tradition records, describes this uh, ceremony, and uh, describes the Jewish population's abusive hitting and even plucking out the scapegoat's hair as he carried the sins of the people out as he departs the city. But you know, the Jewish people always have this nagging fear of, well, what if the goat, like, like, a, like a stray dog finding his way back home, or you know, a bad penny showing up again. What if this goat with the sins of Israel wanders back into the camp of Israel? The sins of the nation transferred that the goat would have returned to their midst. So, Somewhere along the way, they uh, add an innovation to the ceremony to remove all doubt. They lead the goat to a high cliff top, And at the right moment, they give him a healthy shove off the cliff to remove all doubt of a possible... There he is. Whoop. Uh, no, no chance that that one's going to return. Right? And Jewish tradition records that the scarlet ribbon uh, tacked on the temple used to turn white the moment the goat fell, right? Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow, Isaiah. But Jewish tradition also tells us that strangely, for the 40 years prior to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, that scarlet thread stopped turning white. It just hung there, remaining scarlet for everybody to see. In the year that Jesus began his ministry, that would be 30 AD, 40 years before the temple Was destroyed. Probably in the very season he began it, God gave Israel a very silent but potent witness to their need for a greater atonement. Well, let's move past Old Testament now. Let's go to today, right? Um, What is Yom Kippur like today, aside from getting out of school and work? right? There's no food to be eaten uh, because it's a severe fast. And Leviticus tells us to afflict our souls. And so prohibitions include wearing leather shoes, no leather shoes, which was a sign of luxury in ancient times. So a lot of people will wear sneakers on that day. So in other words, afflict your souls with rubber soles. But uh, no sexual relations are allowed, no washing, no anointing, which today uh, is understood to mean no makeup, no wearing makeup, although there is an exception that the rabbis made, uh, and that's a newlywed wife married 30 days or less, is permitted to wear makeup so as not to frighten her husband. Um, but no eating, no drinking, no working. But here's the question. How can you make atonement for your sins today if the temple was destroyed in 70 AD? Bible says without blood, shed within the correct sacrificial temple ritual, there can be no atonement. Well, some Jewish people have come up with some ideas uh, let's see one of these slides. This is actually a, these are religious Jews. Uh, now, these are not, you know, I mean, if you're a conservative or reform or secular Jew, you're not doing this. But if you're ultra-Orthodox, if you're a super-religious Jewish person, you're doing this. This is flagellation, right? Now, you you give a strap to your friend because you don't want somebody going, you know, all Ben-Hur on you, right? Uh, but, uh, you know, but look at this. Let's see the next one. You can see, okay? So his friend is touching him, so that he can atone for, there's no blood, right? So at least there should be suffering, right? There should be some cost to the forgiveness of sins. Let's see another one, right? Here's a kid with his grandfather, right? He's not looking very happy right there. He's looking a little nervous, this kid, if you can see him, I don't know. But that's one way that they have come up with. Now let's see another one. There's there's an interesting ceremony. I want you to just focus on this, picture for a moment. It's an interesting Jewish tradition, particularly those from, uh, of the old country, uh, called Kaporot, uh, Kippur right? Uh, Kaporot is a plural, uh, a covering ceremony, right? You bring home a live hen, a chicken, a rooster. You take your family over to the kosher butcher. You take a bird. You swing it three times over your head. You wave it one, two, three times over your head, over the head of your family. Say, this is my substitute. This is my vicarious offering. This is my atonement. This is my kipporah. This chicken, this rooster hen, whatever it is, uh, will go to its death, but I will enjoy a good, long, and peaceful life. And the ceremony is repeated with all your family members, right? Over the head of each family member, right? So the sin and guilt are symbolically transferred to the chicken. So here we have, uh, you see this kid is like, whoa, what are you doing? Hey, 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 get that bird away from me. Uh, uh, (laughs) Look out, dad. All right, let's see another one right? Here's this mama, and she's terrorizing, she's traumatizing this child, but she's making atonement for her son or grandson, whatever he is, right? And the next one, right? Here's this guy. This guy put a little English into it. He really, he really means it, okay? He really is very serious about it, right? And then we have the next guy uh, who's, who's also, he's reading, you see, he's reading the prayer. This chicken will go to its death, but I will atone for my sin with the blood of this animal. This, this animal has my sin taken on it with the three uh, waves uh, over my head. Next one. And this, I think this guy's doing a yoga pose. I don't know. Uh, but he, he's really... Because atonement is serious business, right? If you want to be made right with God, but you have no temple, and and the rabbis say, well, you don't need a temple anymore, but you don't. Look, you can fool some of the people some of the time, but you can't fool all the people who are familiar with the Scripture, what the Scripture says, right? Even among the common folk, the necessity for substitutionary atonement, life for life, is recognized. And the rabbis have tried to stop this for years, but can't be done, right? The Jewish people have substituted their own personal, homemade, humble ceremonies to keep this holy day from being completely bloodless. Now, what happens, next one? What happens when PETA, and in our time, uh, people get upset about the animals, right? This is from uh, uh, from the Gothamist uh, from 2014. Uh, Here's a quote. This is the Torah that came down from God to Moses. We don't write the Torah. We just follow the commandments because Jewish ritual chicken, this is the headline down here, Jewish ritual chicken slaughter sparks protest in Crown Heights. That's where you'll see it, especially in Brooklyn. Next one is another quote that Spielman lives in Crown Heights uh, and uh, uh, says, Saw no issue with the hoisting of the live chickens and was upset by the protesters' screams and the accusations. Let's get down now to the messianic application. Because only the Passover demonstrates a clear, closer connection between Jesus and one of the festivals. In the letter to Hebrews, which again, I'm so glad we read earlier. In other words, the letter that was written specifically to the Jewish people, it portrays Jesus as the fulfillment of the Day of Atonement. In fact, if you don't understand the Day of Atonement, it's very hard to understand About uh, two-thirds of what's being written in Hebrews without that kind of knowledge. But three facets of, or two facets of the connection are explored that I want to uh, I want to close with. The first is that Jesus is God's perfect high priest. Jesus is God's perfect. Let's get that slide up there. Jesus is God's perfect high priest. That's point number one. Hebrews 2:17 reads, therefore. He, Jesus, had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. And he continues the same theme in chapter 7. Furthermore, the older priests, the former priests, were many in number, but they are prevented by death in continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently. Why? Because he continues forever. Consequently, facto, he is able for all time to save those who approach God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So when Israel high priests came and went as they died or were replaced, but Jesus, as the resurrected high priest, will minister forever. And what that means for us is that there is not one moment of any day when Jesus is not serving as our high priest. And because he always lives, in other words, he lives eternally, he's always on the job, never going to 7-Eleven for a coffee break, never eating the Dunkin' Donuts, never taking a nap, never vacation, because he's always on the job. Our salvation is likewise secured eternally. We never have to sweat it because he shed it for us. Let's continue chapter 7. For it was fitting we should have such a high priest, holy, blameless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priest, he had no need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for his people. For this he did when he offered himself once for all. This high priest is perfect. He doesn't have to first make atonement for himself before he ministers on our behalf because he is perfect in and of himself. One-stop shopping, perfect high priest and perfect sacrifice. And he's not to be continually offered and re-offered daily, weekly, or annually. This is what the scripture says. Once for all, this perfect high priest offered himself as a perfect once-for-all sacrifice. We'll get back to the sacrifice in a moment. But when Christ, this is Leviticus, uh, or sorry, Hebrews 9.11, when Christ came as the high priest of the good things that have come through the greater and perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, uh, he entered once for all into the holy place, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. So Jesus' high priesthood functions in a better place, not in a temple that was destroyed, but in the true Holy of Holies, the actual real localized heavenly presence of God, not serving in a copy of the heavenly sanctuary, but in the real deal. And the blood that this high priest had offered is not the inferior blood of bulls, calves, goats, what have you, but his own Blood, the, the blood of Messiah. Jesus sacrificed, not like animals, to be repeated once for all for the total and complete eradication of sin. What the book of Hebrews is teaching is that sin hinders our access to the presence of God. Remember, only the high priest could go into the presence of God, and that was blood in his hands. But it means that we, now have such a great high priest that we can boldly approach the throne of grace. You know, traditional Judaism and many other philosophies teach that you don't need a a mediator between man and God. You can just talk to God, have your own relationship. That's not true biblically. The Jewish people always had a mediator. In the past, his name was the high priest. That was the function of the high priest, to serve as the intermediary between man and God. But when the temple is destroyed, there's no high priest. But if you read the book of Hebrews, you know that there has always been a high priest and there always will be a high priest for us. The only way between man and God, the only way to make things right with our Creator, our high priest is the, is the perfect high priest and he is the perfect sacrifice. Point number two. His sacrifice made once for all. As Hebrews 10 says... The law, Torah, in other words, can never by the same sacrifices continually offered year to year make perfect those who approach. Otherwise, would they not have ceased being offered since the worshipers were cleansed once for all, would no longer have consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin year after year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So the very fact, that after Yom Kippur, the day of atonement sacrifices, recranked up again the next day, proves, demonstrated, they were always insufficient. And the fact that it came once a year proves that it was insufficient. It didn't solve the problem. If it solved the problem, you'd never need to repeat it. Nobody could ever pretend, before Jesus died for them, that their sins were definitively, once for all, taken care of. But the Messiah's sacrifice, in contrast, sanctifies us, makes us holy, makes us righteous, makes us acceptable to him in the eyes of God. So, after the death of Messiah, if if you're a follower of Jesus, sins are no longer just covered. Now they are removed. Not covered, but atoned for, removed. Because our Messiah's sacrifice has indeed done the job. We have assurance of our salvation. We never have to worry and wonder, am I good enough this year? Am I doing okay? How am I doing? Um, We can relax. How are you doing? Uh, We can relax in the quiet confidence and the knowledge that the answer is, hey, you know what? We can never be good enough. We can never do enough to merit His divine favor. If we put our sins on the scale against His righteousness, we're always going to be lose. It's always going to fly the wrong way for us, scale the wrong way for us. That's the human condition. But God has made more than adequate provision for us. He saw our inadequacies. He said, I got you covered. The overwhelming weight of His Messiah's, of His Son's death, will always tip the scales in our favor, because we don't trust in our own good deeds or our own righteousness. We trust in the righteousness of somebody else, a Messiah, Jesus, and that his shed blood is sufficient. And that is wholly and completely God's gift to us, his children. Why would he give us such a gift? Because he loves us that much. Let's conclude with a scripture. He loves us so much that he gave his own son as the perfect sacrifice. How can we receive that gift? Only through placing our trust, exercising faith in him. Well, here's the scripture. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confessions, and let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. Well, we've reached the end of our journey. I'd like to say hello to you in the, in the, in the vestibule. If you'll, if you'll come and say hi, I'd like to meet you. But right now, what I want to do is bless you. And, but your whole message was, no, I want to give you the ironic benediction. I want to Chant Now, I say ironic, not Ironic, okay? Uh, this is from the scripture. This is the, the blessing that the priest, the high priest, gave over the congregation of Israel. I would like to share that as a, a representative Messiah, share that with you. I'm going to go like this. It's not because I'm a Vulcan, okay? It's because this is how it's done. This is the letter Shin, uh, which is the first letter of Shaddai in Hebrew, all right? And it's a reminder that God is over us. So, would you please stand for the benediction, and then you will be uh, free to uh, wander and uh, and have more coffee or whatever you like. Go golfing, whatever you're going to do today. I'll say it in Hebrew and then in English. <laughs> May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you peace. Amen. Thanks, everyone.